1 Thessalonians 4, chapters 13 through to 18. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together, caught up together and them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we'll both be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. I just want to skip to Luke 17, verses 20 to 37. Once, on being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, The coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed. Nor will people say, here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. Then he said to the disciples, The time is coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you will not see it. People will tell you, there he is, or here he is. Do not go running after them. For the Son of Man in his day will be like the lightning, which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as, it is, just as it was in the days of Noah, so also will it be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating, drinking, marrying, and being given in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building, but the day Lot let Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, no one who is on the housetop with possessions inside should go down to get them. Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever tries to keep their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life will preserve it. I tell you, on that night, two people will be in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding grain together. One will be taken and the other left. Where, Lord, they asked. He replied, where there is a dead body, there the vultures will gather. Oh, good morning. As Bruce said, my name is Nathan, and we are indeed looking at the rapture together this morning. I remember when I found out, when Bruce told me that we were going to be doing this and that I'd be the one speaking on it. It's a kind of, it's a moment where you go, wow, I really hope I, I do get raptured before Sunday comes along. <laughs> Thankfully, uh, I did hedge my bets and I have prepared a sermon anyway. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that we might hear you this morning as we listen to your word now. Amen. Captain Rayford Steele opened the cockpit door and Hattie, his senior flight attendant, nearly bowled him over. No need to knock, he said, I'm coming. She pulled him into the galleyway. 
people are missing, she managed in a whisper. A whole bunch of people just gone. Hattie, this is a big plane. They've wandered to the bathroom or I've been everywhere. I'm telling you, dozens of people are missing. Hattie, it's still dark. We'll find, I'm not crazy. See for yourself. All over the plane, people have disappeared. Their shoes, their socks, their clothes, everything was left behind. These people are gone. Hattie slipped from his grasp and knelt whimpering in the corner. Rayford wanted to comfort her, to enlist her help. More than anything, he wanted to believe the woman was crazy, but she knew better than to put him on. It was obvious. She really believed people had disappeared. He stepped into first class, where an elderly woman sat stunned in the pre-dawn haze, her husband's sweater and trousers in her hands. What in the world, she said? Harold? This was no joke, no trick, no dream. Something was terribly wrong and there was no place to run. First one, then another cried out as they realised their seatmates were missing, but that their clothes were still there. They cried, they screamed, they leapt from their seats. That's a little excerpt from the opening chapter of the book Left Behind, which is a dramatic novel about the simultaneous worldwide disappearance of all Christians and the fate of those who get left behind. Back in the early 2000s, uh, this book was so popular, it ended up spawning 15 more books in the series. Not only did the book get a movie adaptation, but I found out recently uh, it's been rebooted and it stars none other than Nicolas Cage. <laughs> now, it honestly got, doesn't get much bigger than that, does it? If you can land Nicolas Cage, you know you've made it. Maybe it says more about Nicolas Cage, actually, I'm not sure. Did you notice in that poster, though, no one's really panicking, are they? Even as the city burns behind them and planes coming in to crash, they're just mildly concerned. Hmm. When I was in uh, high school, I devoured these books, read through every single one of them. I was fascinated with things to do with the end times, the fact that Jesus might return at any moment, and the question, what's going to happen to Christians when he does? I was fascinated by it. Going by the millions of books that were sold in this series, it's like over 40 million books sold. I was not the only one who was fascinated by the topic. We are into the second week in our brief little Advent series, Return of the King, and this is a series that has us focusing uh, not on the Christmas Advent, Jesus' first coming, but on His return, the second coming of Jesus. Last week, we took a look with Scott at the royal majestic figure of the Son of Man, the cloud surfer, the one who now rules and the one who will soon return. This week, we're, we're asking questions like, what is His return actually going to look like for us? What's it going to look like on the ground level? What are the kinds of things we should be expecting and how might that shape the way that we wait? This event, what happens to us, has become known as the rapture. You might have heard that term before. The word itself, rapture, comes from a Latin word, rapio, which is itself a translation of the Greek word, which means to be snatched away or to be caught up. Now, it is worth saying at this point that some Christians disagree as to the nature and the timing of the rapture event. Some argue, like the authors of the Left Behind series, that it's all going to happen well advance of Christ's return. Christians will suddenly vanish, then there'll be a significant chunk of time before 
Christ returns and God's final judgment comes. The rapture then, to this model, is more of kind of like an escape, whereby Christians get taken off, whisked away to some other place to to be with the Lord. Other Christians argue, however, that the rapture event is is more likely going to coincide with Christ's return and with God's final judgment. It'll kind of happen, unfold at around about the same time. It's like one package. And so it's not so much of an escape, but the rapturing or the catching up of God's people is a gathering, gathering them together in order to be ready to receive the coming King and to establish His kingdom here on earth. Now there's lots, there's lots that could be said about this whole debate to do with the end times. A lot of it comes down to how you read and understand the book of Revelation, but convenient enough for me, seeing as though we're going to be in the book of Revelation next week, I'm going to leave that to the boss and Bruce can sort that out for us. Cheers, mate. I do think though, as we work through our passages together today, it's going to be quite clear which of the two possibilities is best supported by Scripture, whether it's an escape to somewhere else or whether it's more like a gathering. And in the end, as with everything, we've got to take our lead from God's Word, don't we? See what He has to say about it. And as it happens, both passages that we've, we've re- already read together today are kind of like the go-to passages when it comes to what we know about the rapture itself. And as we'll see, each passage kind of gives us a bit of a different perspective. So in the first instance, we'll see from 1 Thessalonians that it's going to be great. Let's put it simply, it's going to be great. And then in, in Luke 17, we'll actually also find that it's going to be terrible. Great and terrible. We're going to begin uh, in 1 Thessalonians. If you want to have that open in front of you, you might need to flick back from where we were. Uh, we're in 1 Thessalonians 4, page 1188. I wonder if you know this, but... The book of 1 Thessalonians has a reputation for being one of Paul's most positive letters. If you know anything about Paul, uh, he's never afraid of a fight, uh, challenging churches or maybe even throwing around a couple of harsh rebukes from time to time. But you come to the book of 1 Thessalonians and it's, it's brimming with encouragement and praise. It's really a glowing report card for the church in Thessalonica. And so as we come to the the end of chapter 4, Paul actually pushes pause on the praise and he seeks to address a pastoral concern that really must have been pretty frightening for the Thessalonians at the time. You see, those in the early church were, they were super expectant of the fact that Jesus was going to come back and it was going to be in their lifetime. That was the expectation. And they believed it so much that it created a bit of a problem for them because members of their community had started dying. And the thinking went, if Christ is coming back virtually tomorrow in our lifetime, what happens if we actually die before that happens? Will our loved ones, will the members of our church actually miss out in some way because they've passed away before Jesus comes back? That was the thinking, that was the pastoral concern. So in the first two verses here, we see Paul kind of gets straight to the point to help answer that concern. He says in verse 13, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death. And then he moves on in verse 14. This is what he wants them to know. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, 
And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in Him. You see there? In other words, believers who die will not be disadvantaged on the day that Jesus returns because Jesus rose from the dead. We can be confident in knowing that they too will also rise from the dead. In fact, Paul goes to great pains throughout the passage to say, not only will they come too, but they're actually going to come first. So those who have passed away are actually going to be prioritized almost. One of the things that I really love about this passage is in how Paul goes about trying to answer their concern. He doesn't just say, nah, look, don't worry about it, she'll be right, you know, it'll all work out. Probably didn't have an Aussie accent, but... He doesn't just kind of leave it at that, those first two verses. What he then does is paint for them and for us an amazing picture of just how truly great and glorious this day is going to be. I wonder if you were able to picture it yourselves as we had it read a little earlier on. It's amazing. With a booming command, with the resounding trumpet's call, the Lord of all creation will appear and we, his people, will be gathered to him. What a truly great reunion that will be. There is something tremendous about reunions, isn't there? You might remember seeing a video that was getting around a few years ago uh, that I think really captures the emotion of reunions. It begins with a series of people off in faraway places, on an oil rig, um, in the desert, in a foreign city. And they all make their way, They, they travel somewhere we don't know where they're going Uh, they get on a train they get in the back of a ute catch a taxi and then they're onto a plane and the music swells and then here's what happens next it feels like can't stand that video. (laughs) I cringe every time I see it. It's not because I'm heartless. I actually think it does a great job of pulling at your heartstrings. But if I let it run through to the end, you of course come to realize it's just an ad for Qantas. (laughs) Like, come on, like Qantas doesn't care about your family reunion. They just, they just want your money, right? (laughs) At least for me, I reckon that little kangaroo at the end there ruins the whole thing, right? Ruins the whole mood when you work out what they're actually trying to do. You just feel manipulated, right? But the reason the ad works, the reason why we love it, is because we love reunions. Getting to see old friends again, welcoming home family members, getting to catch up on lost time. We love it. We love it. I think that's the picture that Paul's painting for us here in 1 Thessalonians. It's the great reunion isn't it? The reunion to end all reunions. There will never have been one like it and there'll never be one like it again. That's the picture that this passage paints and it's great. It's great. My cousin died when he was 21, 10 years ago in January and my heart jumps when I think about what that day will be like for the two of us and for for the rest of his family to get to see each other again and to catch up on lost time, to get to introduce him to my wife and to my kids. 
I'm sure all of us have people we can't wait to see again. On that day, we will. We will. Do you know what the craziest thing is? As excited as I am to see my cousin, I'm positive that I'll be even more excited coming face to face with my Savior. Someone that we've met before, but whom we've never seen. Someone that we love, but whom we've never had the chance to embrace. The one who came, the one who bled, and the one who died for me and for you. And getting to be with Him in the flesh for the first time, (laughs) that's what will make this reunion truly great, isn't it? Paul makes this point throughout the passage as clear as he can, I think. It's going to be awesome for us to, to get to see our lost loved ones again. But Paul's entire focus through this passage is actually on our returning King. Because it's His coming that actually sets the whole reunion in motion. And when he does come, we actually all get caught up. Raptured is the word there, in order to meet Jesus in the air. It's here in verse 17, actually, that, that, that some Christians will point to in order to say that believers will be raptured away somewhere to be with Jesus. But look, if you ask me, I really hope in the air is not the destination that we're heading towards. It's interesting, it doesn't use the word heaven, it doesn't use the word new earth, it doesn't use the word kingdom, it's in the air, which is a strange final destination, if you ask me. Like, there's not a whole lot to do in the air, is there? I think what Paul's doing here, describing it like this, because he's really trying to emphasize just how rapt we're going to be to meet our returning king, much like the father in uh, the story of the parable son. Sorry, the prodigal son. The father sees his son returning, doesn't he? Off in the distance. And so he takes off running in order to meet him before he arrives because he can't bear to wait anymore. He's been waiting long enough. So out he goes in order to meet him. I think that's what's going on here in the scene that Paul describes. Believers aren't so much being snatched away to a secret place in the air They're going out to meet and welcome the king as he returns here, caught up in his return. You know, whatever it ends up actually looking like, I think what Paul's trying to do is to encourage and comfort the Thessalonians and us. He says that there in verse 18, therefore encourage one another with these words. That's the application. Be encouraged, take comfort. Because the day of glorious reunion is a day worth us waiting for. It's a day worth us longing for. I know I do. Do you? So, God's Word tells us it's going to be great. That's just the first of our two passages. What about the other one? Luke 17. Perhaps surprisingly so, it paints a picture that's rather contrasting. According to Luke's account, the rapture is going to be terrible. If you want to flip back with me to page 1050, Luke 17, starting in verse 20. This section of the gospel begins with the religious leaders, and they come to Jesus pressing him for details. When will this kingdom of God arrive, they ask. When's it coming? I think we can probably um, relate to that question, if you've ever asked that yourselves. Jesus gives them 
one of his patented cryptic answers. And then he takes his disciples aside and he issues them a warning. And in contrast to the, to the scene of glorious reunion we've just seen in, in, in 1 Thessalonians 4, the picture Jesus describes is of a sudden separation of judgment. It's super dark, if you noticed. Jesus starts there in verse 24 by saying, when the Son of Man returns, it's going to come like a crack of lightning, lighting up the sky from one end to the other. Then in verse 26 to 30, he draws comparisons with what we would probably say are two of the most brutal Old Testament examples of God's swift and sudden judgment, right? Noah's Ark and the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Dark. Scenes of unimaginable chaos and destruction and death. And then in verse 30, you'll see he says, Jesus says, it will be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. Dark. It seems that the thing Jesus is really trying to hammer home by calling upon these two examples is the suddenness of the judgment. Right? If destruction came swiftly in their day, why would we expect anything different when it comes to ours? God's final judgment is going to fall without warning. We will be in the middle of doing life, says Jesus. Eating, drinking, buying, selling, planting, building. A husband and wife will be sharing a bed. Two workers will be working side by side. And then with a flash, in an instant, separation, judgment. It will be terrible and terrifying and it's going to come without warning. Now this passage as well is what the left behind guys, where they get the idea of kind of an instant vanishing. At one level it kind of makes sense, right? You can see where they're coming from. Husband and wife are in bed together, two people are working side by side and then all of a sudden one's left and one's taken. The thing is though, it actually isn't clear in this passage or in the other passage in Matthew 24 where the same story is told, it's not clear which is being saved and which is being judged. It's hard to know whether the person left is actually being left for judgment or left for salvation and vice versa. It actually doesn't make it clear. Jesus doesn't specify. And it may actually be that those who are taken aren't being raptured to be with the Lord, but they're being taken off for judgment. In the end, it's not even really what's in focus, I think, which is why Jesus doesn't bother to specify. What's in focus is the suddenness, the suddenness of the coming judgment. I don't know about you, but when it comes to eating out, <laughs> I often find it really hard to, to decide what it is I want to eat. And it, it frustrates my wife to no end, because... <laughs> We'll be there in line and Belle will be chatting away to me, but I'm not hearing her because I'm trying to work out what it is that I want. And I'm, you know, the pressure's building because the closer you get to the front of the line, the closer it is you've got to make your choice. And so she'll be trying to get me to listen. I'm trying to read the menu and work out what I actually want. And all the while we're getting closer and closer to that time where I have to make the decision. Anyone else find it hard like me sometimes to decide? That is not what it's going to be like when the Son of Man returns. It's not like we're all, he'll turn up and we'll all just kind of form an orderly queue and one by one kind of make our way to the front and then get to 
give our order, right? That's not how it's going to work. As we've just seen in Luke 17, when the king returns, there's not going to be a line. Do you know why that is? It's because we're in the line right now. We're in the line right now. And each day we're getting closer to the front. The tragedy is, here's the real tragedy. There are far, far too many people in our world who aren't even looking at the menu. Who don't even realize that they're in a line and that each day they're getting closer to the front. Now is the time when we've got to make our choice. Now is the time. Now is the time because we don't even know how long the line is. We don't know when the front is going to come. And when it does, like a flash of lightning, if we haven't decided to put our faith and trust in God's Son, in His death and resurrection for our sin, if we haven't turned back to God and said sorry, then on that day it will be too late. And if that's you, then that day will be most terrible indeed. When the king returns, what's it going to be like on the ground level? A glorious reunion and a sudden separation. Great and terrible will be that day. God's Word is a great thing and it has a remarkable way of being able to speak in different ways to different people at different times but when it speaks it always speaks to us right where we are. Have you ever noticed that? Wherever we are at, whatever situation we might be in. So maybe hearing God's Word this morning has encouraged you to have some perspective. The things that stress us out, the stuff that raises our heart rates, the deadlines that are looming, the massive weight of expectation that we're carrying, the fear, the stuff that wakes us up at night, stuff that seems so big to you right now, maybe even insurmountable. You know what happens to all of it? It shrinks. It shrinks when it's placed in the shadow of the king's return, in the shadow of the great reunion. Because you see, on that day, everything that seems insurmountable to us now, on that day, it will become infinitesimal. You know, I often think about how on that day, I'm going to look back and just, I'm just going to shake my head at how stressed out I got at stuff that ultimately really didn't matter. I will shake my head at it. Actually, that might not be right. On that day, I don't even think we're going to look back. I don't even think we're going to look back. Is God's Word encouraging you to have some perspective in your life at the moment? Or maybe for you, it's an encouragement to persevere. This morning's Word is for those in mourning, for those who have lost loved ones, those who wake each day in pain or in grief for various reasons, those who are suffering persecution of many kinds, those with great needs that are going unmet, those who are afflicted with disease or disability or destitution. God's Word today reminds us that restoration is returning and His name is Jesus. And when we know that, when we allow ourselves to feed on that hope, it has the power to transform the way we navigate our suffering, doesn't it? 
It won't numb the pain. It's not going to pluck us out immediately from our situation of hardship. But there is a great power to knowing, isn't there? There's a great power to knowing, to know that, that all of that difficulty is going to come to an end one day. To be reminded that the king will return and bring with him new life to old and broken bodies. Bring with him new blessings that will satisfy our every need and new reconciliation that will mend our broken relationships. Remembering that he is coming may just be the encouragement you need to persevere through the pain of today. To hold on, to hold out, to hold fast for the glorious reunion of tomorrow. Finally, you know, it, it's hard to read through the passages that we've read through today and, and not be encouraged to prepare. It, it would surely be a tragedy if Jesus' warnings here failed to press us into action, wouldn't it? Tragedy. So for those of us here this morning who aren't yet sure whether Jesus' return will be great or terrible for you, can I, can I implore you, please, to prepare? Prepare. The only way to do that is by seeking a relationship with God, who at this very moment is actually seeking a relationship with you. He is a God who's calling you to return to Him, to return to Him in repentance and faith, and who promises to forgive you by the blood of His Son, Jesus, and offers to give you life in place of death. What an offer that is. Prepare. For those of us who do know you are loved and forgiven, saved by Jesus, destined for His coming kingdom, God's Word also encourages us to prepare as well. This is a picture of a place called Banda Aceh, which is a district on Indonesia's Sumatra Island. On the 26th of December in 2004, the third most powerful earthquake ever recorded triggered a massive tsunami that ended up taking the lives of over 200,000 people absolutely horrific. Here's what Ache looked like after the water had swept through. Australia was at the forefront of the humanitarian response. It actually became the largest peacetime operation we had ever launched overseas. Within 36 hours of the disaster, we dispatched medical teams and supplies to Indonesia, places like Ache. And by the 5th of January, the Australian government had pledged a billion dollars to Indonesia to help in the restoration effort. Unbelievable, some of those numbers, aren't they? Imagine for a moment, just for a moment, that you were on the medical team that arrived uh, at Aceh, sent to provide aid. Imagine getting there on the ground, medical kit in hand, stethoscope around your neck, and just looking around and seeing the, the destruction and the, the bodies strewn about the place, people crying out for your help. And then imagine that you turn to your colleagues and say, so, who wants lunch? And then you spent the rest of your time on the island just living it up, visiting tourist destinations, enjoying yourself at the resort. That would be ludicrous, wouldn't it? Absolutely ludicrous. It'd be impossible. I was at a ministry conference a few years ago and the speaker painted that very same picture for us all. Ludicrous, he said, that you would arrive at ground zero and then ignore the need that was all around you. What he said next, I'll never forget. 
And yet, isn't that exactly what we are in danger of doing when we can't even spare a thought for the thousands of people who are around us and are unprepared for the Lord's return? They might not look like they're in need, but they are. They've got the greatest of need because they're in the greatest of danger. The danger of not knowing God. We know God. We can make the introduction. We can help people prepare. Yet so often we choose not to. Or we don't even think to. It's like we've forgotten the need and so therefore forgotten the danger. You see, the terrible picture Luke 17 paints is not only a blunt encouragement for ourselves to make sure that we are prepared, but it's also a challenge and should motivate us to play a part in helping to prepare others, shouldn't it? Helping to prepare others, make that introduction. To be people who look around, see the need, and then do something about it. When it comes to the rapture, I don't think it'll look anything like how Left Behind describes it. The idea of Christians getting zapped off to a secret place before Christ returns in judgment. You know, it might be good at selling books. It certainly was. It's good for giving Nicolas Cage something to be concerned about. But it's not the end that Scripture describes for us. Yet while it might be different to Left Behind, it'll be no less dramatic, no less significant, because as we've heard from God's Word this morning, the return of the King will be both great and terrible. The end is coming. We don't know when, but it's soon. And it's an end that is worth looking forward to. It's an end that's worth living in light of, and it's an end that we must all be prepared for. Are you? Let's pray. Father God, as we have reflected together this morning on your word and what it reveals to us about your son's return, we pray that we would heed the warning, um, the warning of Luke 17, of the suddenness of the judgment, and therefore be urgent, not just to prepare ourselves, but to make sure those around us are prepared as well. We also pray, Lord, that we might take on board the encouragement and the comfort from 1 Thessalonians 4, that this glorious return uh, will be a reunion, the greatest reunion we've ever seen. Help us to long for that, Lord. Help us to live for that. And Father, we pray that it comes soon. Amen.